It's that time of the year, and this is a podcast for Britain Peers Art on one of Benjamin Britten's most recognisable Christmas works, A Ceremony of Carols. My name's Lucy Walker. Benjamin Britten wrote A Ceremony of Carols in 1942, and it is a set of nine carols scored for high voices and harp. In the 81 years since its premiere at Norwich Castle, it has become an absolute mainstay of choral concerts in the build-up to Christmas. A very brief look online finds a raft of Ceremony of Carols across the country in the first three weeks of December. Temple Church, St John the Baptist Holland Park, St Martin in the Fields and St Paul's Cathedral in London. Then there's South Chilton Choral Society, Lincoln Cathedral, the Wimpole Estate in Cambridgeshire, St Peter Mancroft Church in Norwich and Leeds Cathedral. Further afield, we find it being performed in Jersey Town Church in St Helier, across Germany in Wernigerode, Frankfurt, Goethe and Saarbrücken, and at St Mary's Cathedral, Colorado Springs in the US. I found some of the performances on the websites of professional harpists who are always in demand at this time of year. In this podcast, I'm going to look at the music of Ceremony of Carols and explore why this piece has remained so popular. I'll be taking the opinions of three people who regularly take part in performances of it, the conductor and singer Ben Von Beau-Clark, soprano Madeline Holmes and harpist Miriam Keogh. These three performers, as it happens, have regularly been involved in the annual Scratch Choir Ceremony of Carols for Britain Peers Arts. And weaving in and out of this podcast will be the intriguing backstory of this piece. It's a fascinating tale of a harp concerto that didn't happen, a bookshop in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and a 12-day naval convoy across the Atlantic. That was Walcombe Yule from Ceremony of Carols. This most English of choral works starts in America. Britain moved there with his partner, Peter Pears, in 1939. A few months after arriving, World War II started. Britain had not been sure how long he would stay in the US, but found the decision somewhat out of his hands as it became difficult to return for a number of reasons. His letters home reveal a certain anxiety for his family back in the UK, as well as a mix of enthusiasm and ambivalence about his temporarily adopted country. He ended up staying in the US for three years, experiencing great professional success in the shape of several premieres and commissions, as well as disappointments. His first stage work, Paul Bunyan, was poorly received, and he was unable to get any work in Hollywood, as he had originally hoped. By 1942, he was very ready to come back. The ultimate trigger was an attack of homesickness on finding a book of poems by Suffolk poet George Crabbe in a Los Angeles bookshop. This poem ultimately formed the basis of Britain's opera, Peter Grimes. Having decided to leave, Britain and Piers had to wait for some months before a viable crossing was available, but they did eventually leave in April 1942. More of that shortly. Before that, I'm going to look at why this piece was scored for harp rather than the more conventional carol accompaniment of organ. You just heard a clip from the beautiful harp interlude from A Ceremony of Carols. So we start with this harp concerto that didn't happen and a remarkable woman called Edna Phillips. 
1930, when she was 23 years old, harpist Edna Phillips was recruited by the conductor Leopold Stokowski to be the first female musician in the Philadelphia Orchestra. In fact, in 1930, she was the only woman regularly employed by a major American orchestra. As well as being part of the orchestra, she occasionally appeared as a soloist, and by the early 1940s, frustrated by both a lack of new solo works for harp being written, or works which were written badly for the instrument, she began to commission. And pieces came forth from Ernst Dochniani, Ernst Krenick, Alberto Ginastera, and Peggy Glanville Hicks, among others. Sometime around late 1941 or early 42, she approached Britain for a new work, and they met one afternoon in New York. According to Edna Phillips' biographer, Mary Sue Welsh, they had a pleasant afternoon together, during which she played for him and they discussed technical aspects of the harp. She asked him directly to write a work for her, but he declined, distracted at the time by his forthcoming return to the UK. However, as Edna later told her biographer, he composed the ceremony of carols on the ship, taking him back to England and used the harp in such an original and wonderful way in it. It really doesn't matter that he didn't accept our commission. That is a great work for harp. So this explains why the harp was so much on Britain's mind in the first few months of 1942. He also probably had a couple of harp manuals with him on the ship, borrowed or perhaps gifted from Edna Phillips. The harp is the accompaniment to the voices throughout and has its own solo interlude in the middle. We're going to hear now from another eminent harpist, Miriam Keogh, who at the age of 15 started lessons with Gwendolyn Morris, who in fact played at the premiere of A Ceremony of Carols in 1942. Miriam later learned with Oshian Ellis, who also worked regularly with Britain. If you could see the floor of my house right now in my music room, it is covered with Britain's music. He really used the harp superbly throughout the whole instrument. When did you first play Ceremony of Carols? Oh, I think I was about 18. Yes, I do exactly remember where it was. It was it was in Kent for a choir and I wasn't driving then and I didn't own a car. So I had to get my harp on the train and be collected. And that was an incredible saffle because people seem to think the harp folds up, <laughs> you know, and they just bring the wrong size car and have to go away again. And that that's happened to me a lot when, when I first started working because I couldn't possibly afford a car. That's definitely when I did it first, somewhere way down in the bottom of Kent. Perhaps we can talk a little bit just about the technical side and why less experienced composers might struggle to write for the harp. What is it that's different, say, about writing for the harp than, say, writing for the... I mean, this is going to sound very ignorant question, writing for the piano. No, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Everybody assumes that the keyboard, because it's two hands, two staves can transfer it onto the harp. It is my nightmare when I go to play Ceremony of Carols that the conductor will say, oh, we're just doing a few carols. Could you play the piano part on the harp? And I just die on the spot because I'm not a great sight reader. But also, we only use four fingers in each hand. So that's eight, not ten. And so you have two less there that you have on the piano. Um, and when you change key... Again, on the piano, all the notes are just laid out handily in front of you. Um, on the harp, you have to change pedal to change the actual arrangement, the, the tautness of the strings, so they become in a different key. Is that correct? You've got a series of pedals that do that for you. We have seven pedals, one for each note of the scale, three positions for each pedal, flat, natural, sharp. And I've never counted it, obviously, but I hear there are more than 2,000 combinations for the feet. 
It is written in a book. I quoted that. For, I've seen that in a book um, about the harp. So I, I, I've never, I wouldn't sit down to do something like that. There's more interesting things to do in life. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so that's, yes, that's a very, that's completely different from how it is on the piano. So it's a kind of, it's they're just, it's just totally, totally different. Well, you, you may select a key like D major, so you put your F sharp and your C sharp in before you start and off you go. But then along the way, if an accidental happens, you've got to put that in like a B flat, but then you've got to remember to remove it immediately because it can't stay there because in the next bar it may be B natural. So all, you are subtracting a lot of the time. Yeah. Yes. And you're constantly thinking ahead, aren't you, to, to the... Um... To what's coming up and, and will that actually work in that configuration well like in in um, number three there is no rose it's still the, actually to me that is one of the most difficult bits in the piece it's the shapes of the chords are, are apart from being high up there it's really uncomfortable it goes between seconds and fourths and fifths and and then but you've got an octave outside all the way and you're changing a pedal on every chord so it's what I call a very scary moment. <laughs> yes, was... quite exposed, yes. Well, the funny thing is, when I first played this piece, there was so much going on in every carol. The whole thing was a scary moment. But yeah. your big moment comes in the interlude, um, which is written in what for a pianist would be an absolute nightmare, which is seven flats. But that's the best key for the harp. It's utterly is, wonderful. Yes. Because yeah. there are no, none of the forks which are on the top of the harp, which twist and cut off a piece of string to, to raise or lower the pitch. None of those forks are clamped on the string. So the string is free to resonate, like an open string on the cello or the violin. There's no finger down on it. And so that's the best sound. Also, the harmonics speak really well when, when they're in flats. And the harp rings beautifully. And when you play this in a cathedral, it's just fantastic. The overtones ring everywhere. And he's so clever, Britain, because at the end of every phrase, he puts a pause. So pay attention. He wants you to let it ring. You know, it's, it's not just the end of the phrase, but do let it ring right out round the whole cathedral. And the markings are so clever, you know, sempre pp, because you don't actually need to do much more than that. Because if you're in a cathedral, the, the instrument just speaks. It's, it's lovely to hear that even after playing through it, you know, lots and lots and lots of times, you're still happy to get your teeth into it. Oh, yeah. This time of year again. Oh, yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Miriam Keogh there. So back to the backstory. We find Britain in North America waiting around for his crossing. There was finally one available on the Swedish merchant ship Axel Johnson, which would be part of a naval convoy. It left New York on the 20th of March, taking a few days initially to travel up to Boston, then onwards to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where Britain and Piers stayed for three days. While they were in Halifax, Britain visited a bookshop. 
This was quite possibly the book room, which, according to the incredibly helpful members of the old Halifax and Nova Scotia pictures and historical stories of Nova Scotia Facebook groups, was very much a cultural centre of Halifax at the time and only a few minutes walk from the harbour. It sadly closed down in 2008 after 169 years of continuous trading. In this shop, let's say it was the book room, Britain found a copy of the English Galaxy of Shorter Poems edited by one Gerald Bullitt. In selecting the poems, Bullitt remarks that there are some 300 poems in the book not found in other published anthologies. Five of them immediately caught Britain's eye, several of them because of their seasonal feel. He often used anthologies to find texts for his choral and vocal works, flipping through the volumes to see what would set well, what triggered his musical imagination. Interestingly, three of the poems he set, Deo Gracias, There Is No Rose, and As Due in April, are on consecutive pages right at the start of the anthology, so he didn't initially need to browse too far into the book. Two other poems became In Freezing Winter Night and This Little Babe, also on consecutive pages by the poet Robert Southwell. I should point out here that Britain didn't finish Ceremony of Carols on the ship. It was in fact completed after his return and included some texts from another poetry anthology. So, armed with his recently refreshed expertise in the harp and his book of poems, when the Axel Johnson finally left Halifax on the 2nd of April 1942, he was ready to write. As due in April from Ceremony of Carols. Britain did, of course, have a stash of manuscript paper with him, and Ceremony of Carols wasn't the only piece he was working on. On departing from New York, Britain had had a number of his existing manuscripts confiscated by customs. They perhaps thought he was attempting to smuggle out some kind of code, including an early draft of his choral piece, A Hymn to St. Cecilia, setting a text by W.H. Auden. While on the Axel Johnson, Britain redrafted this piece from memory, along with writing Ceremony of Carols, and two songs, Wild with Passion and If Thou Wilt Ease Thine Heart. These are all beautiful lyrical pieces, not without bite, but revealing a composer in full flow. Remember, the crossing was only 12 days long. While waiting in Boston, he had written to a friend, I don't think one can say much because I'm sure that all one has observed on board must be extremely secret and not to be given away till we reach England. But he also, perhaps surprisingly, wrote that he was bored. I would have thought terrified would have been a more likely emotional state. Atlantic crossings at this time were highly vulnerable to attack from U-boats. In the weeks and months before and after Britain's crossing, ships had been attacked and destroyed as part of Operation Drumbeat. The Axel Johnson was one of 35 ships in the convoy, 12 of which were escorts. The other ships contained fuel and whale oil and other items under the heading General. Britain and Pierre's fellow passengers included an ambulance driver, students, a gardener and a butler. Having left Halifax on 2nd of April, they docked first at Belfast, then Cardiff and finally at Liverpool on the 17th of April. I talk next to two performers who are regularly involved in performances of Ceremony of Carols. They talk here about the terrific variety in the music of the piece, the contrasts between the movements, the way Britain deploys the choir and soloists, and the touching use of the old English texts. Between them, they explore why this piece has such a special atmosphere and why choirs enthusiastically return to it year after year. Hello, my name is Madeline Holmes and I'm a soprano. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Maddie, you have 
appeared in Ceremony of Carols, you performed in Ceremony of Carols mm -hmm. a number of times. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about the, the solo soprano uh, role in Ceremony of Carols. It's interesting that you use the word role um, singular um, because I've actually had the experience of conducting it with a girls choir and choosing as you do when you're with a, a girls choir at a school and you want to give everybody an opportunity different voices to do different movements and I've had other experiences of performing in it where that where that's been the case because Britain typically he writes in a huge vocal range and expressive range um, so you have that beautiful um, the younger child the one that's so difficult to pitch as it kind of shifts keys and there are all of those little semitones which is traditionally um, in my experience given to voices that are sort of quite clean, possibly for the reasons of being really able to hear those intervals being kind of really spelt out. Um, mm. Maybe there's something about innocence as well, this feeling of an innocent kind of inquiry into what's happening. Um, and then, of course, you have the beautiful Balulalo, this big sweeping line, um, which sits much, much higher. Um, possibly my favourite movement. I think it's so beautiful when everybody else sort of joins you and then you sweep over the at, at the end um which is really I think a little bit more like lyric soprano which is what I am um and then the freezing winter night um which uh has that huge range of sort of two octaves g to g and actually I think it needs quite a lot of dramatic power as well there's quite a lot going on at that moment and um suddenly you sort of extol this moment of birth in this freezing winter night and that trembling harp. So it's quite an interesting question of whether you use one voice or several to kind of tell the story, really. Yeah, I think if you have the resource and the people that can do it, it's nice to hear the different voices because it has that element of storytelling in some way, even though these are discrete numbers, many of them are relating the story, the, the nativity in some way or other. Absolutely. This idea of, um, I didn't actually know, but before our chat, I was thinking, you know, where does the word carol come from? I think the idea that a carol was actually just a festive song, not necessarily religious. And, you know, the carol was the the dance to sing and dance and the idea of a circle as well. It's so lovely having different people sort of stepping out of that circle in this sort of ceremony. And of course, it comes full circle at the end, doesn't it, with the audio? But um, the idea of it being a community celebration as well. Yes, just on that term carol, because the the curious outlier in a way is the spring carol because in the middle of of all this um freezing winter night and uh being very specifically to do with nativity spring mm. carol comes after in freezing winter night as if we've had the freezing winter night we've had the birth but actually let's just look forward ahead just a moment to spring and the buds coming out and life renewing which is 
unusual in that he's seasonally a kind of come, coming out of character. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really beautiful moment, isn't it? I think of it as a sort of um, God in the world moment, especially because you have this little babe before the interlude, which is um, such a sort of battle cry of birth, isn't it? And then we need that moment of the interlude to remember the, the peace as well. Uh, and then you have the freezing winter night spooky moment of <gasps> fire four, you know, what's happening, saviour is born. And uh, and then it, suddenly it's spring and it gives that feeling, I think, of this is why it happened. And I suppose theologically it takes us also to, towards Easter and the birth is, is for the death, which is for the rebirth. And the innocence of the spring carol is nice in that sense as well, that there's, a, there's a, always a double, isn't it, that Britain's so wonderful at recognising and honouring. Um, but yeah, it is a surprising yeah. moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What so many people talk about, there is, it's done so often, Ceremony of Carols. And what I find, and I, I, I was part of the, the Britain Peers Arts event every year, and I performed in it myself a number of times in different contexts, is you don't get tired of it. Mm. You could probably sing the whole thing off by heart. I've done it so many times. But it, mm. you, what, what is it, do you think, about this piece as a, as a performer, let's say, that, mm. that you can come to it fresh every time it comes around this time of year? You know, I think one of the things about it that's so beautiful is the use of the Old English and the use of the harp. There's something about the combination of this beautiful instrument that we so rarely see and sing with and the softness of it. Um, that is evocative of a time that it could be Christmas, but it could be many other sort of festivals. And again, going back to that idea of a carol and sort of that time in old England where, the, you know, the calendar of the year was was more um, sort of defined and celebrated. It was the only thing going on, you know. There's something really beautiful about those old poems, many of which are anonymous, aren't they, that carol these different sort of thoughts and so it's using, it's having access to a new old language, as it were, that isn't Latin, gives it, for me at least, a secular sort of spiritual place to hang out at that time of year. Um, and the taste of those words and, you know, the, the whole question about whether it's Wolkum or Wolkum or how we pronounce it, it's all part its specialness, really. How often do we meet those words? Otherwise, you know, how rarely do we sing them? So it's a particular place, I think, that it's a sort of place that Christmas could give us access to and a very intangible kind of past that we haven't quite lived that we're trying to get in touch with. There's something mystical about that for me and the use of the harp together with those words makes me stop every time. And also, of course, the huge, the vast compositional range of techniques that Britain uses and the, the colours. And he makes such dis strong decisions about how each text is set. Um, and the, sort of the cliff facing of all of those emotions and ideas makes you never get bored. Hi, I'm Ben Bombo clark I'm a choir director and tenor, and I, I run the music in a church in South London called St John the Divine in Kennington and work with lots of other youth choirs alongside running this marvellous scratch choir day. I've started teaching this to children, having not been aware of this piece, to be honest, as a child myself at all. So I, I started to become aware of it when I wanted to teach it about 10 years ago when I was starting up these choirs in South London. And 
I found it quite bewildering to start with, just because as a few people do when it's called Ceremony of Carols, then obviously you think it's a load of carols uh, rearranged in a sort of Britain way, like he's done with the folk songs. And obviously it's really not, it's quite a niche thing in a way, isn't it? I've never really come across anything else like it. Speaking to a harpist friend last week, just, you know, it's quite funny how it's it's a staple harp thing in December. She was doing it seven times and does that about that sort of each year. But anyway, I do these choirs and some of them have become from, uh, so they've grown up in the choir from age seven, they're now sort of 16. Uh, and they learned the piece with me 10 years ago. And um, uh, when I announced that I was going to do it again this term, that so th they were so thrilled and have come back each week, for, which for kind of a 15, 16 year old children in South London, it's quite abnormal to suddenly turn up. And it's just by far their favourite. So it has really something captivating about it. Nothing like the sort of warmth that you get from your rutters or your chilcots about Christmas, but it nonetheless sort of evokes the, the spirit of Christmas and gets people in the mood in a totally, totally different way. Absolutely. What do you think, apart from nostalgia, say, if you've learnt it as a child and then you come back to it, is there anything musically that you can think of that compels people? Because as you say, it's not comfortable, sweet no. Christmas music at all, is it? It's quite spiky and quite chilly in places. So what do you think yeah. it is? I think certainly with younger children, it's the spikiness of it, the accents in quite strange places that kind of get you to accent words in a way that you never would normally when you're singing stuff. So like Deo Gracias being one of the obvious ones. Deo Gracias. You're, you're sort of accenting that sort of randomly, which is not really how you say the word, is it? Gra you, the, the stress would be on the first syllable, you would have thought. Stuff like that just gets gets everything so so edgy. We know you wrote very well for, for kids stuff, but it's not because it's tuneful or cat well it is tuneful and catchy but in a very Britain way and I mean the language as well but set in the way that he does but why would you compare the birth of Jesus to a medieval battle field using quite a lot of very old-fashioned terminology that no none of us <laughs> are aware of now they know what drones are they know what cyber warfare is some of these kids but you're not going to know what a you know, his camp is pitched in a field. Well, who's pitching? What? Why is there a camp? Who's going camping? No, none of them. <laughs> so it's quite fun. You can really get into the imagery. This is the way I teach it, certainly to younger people, as you, you fire up their imagination. And then there's the completely different language of the plain song, uh, which obviously is not Britain, but doing it with harp and A major, which is obviously done on purpose because it goes into the next movement. But it's very high. <laughs> so sort of um, getting that into their system, it's totally a different style of singing, uh, adds its own challenges. But then it's obviously very beautiful if you can get it off by heart and then they can process in singing it. I mean, the way I normally do it is we process in a cappella. And then we don't recess out, we sing it with harp uh, at the end, because the harp part's quite wonderful, actually, for that. As you say, you've done a scratch choir, Come and Sing event for Britain Piers for over a number of years, and, and um, I've seen you 
in action at the podium, um, rallying sometimes quite a large, large group um, singing and some people arriving for the first time, learning it in a day. What are the most challenging movements in that environment, in the kind of scratch choir come and sing in a day? Yeah, so there are always people who, who have signed up thinking, you know, ceremony of carols, so go, going for a day to sing carols. Uh, and you can see their faces in the first few minutes. <laughs> Terrified. Initially, it, I mean, it's because it's so unfamiliar. I start with the ones that are largely in unison, the, the round ones. So the chorus of Adam Blade Bound and normally start with number six slowly, all in unison. Then you break it into the rounds and people start to get to grips with it. I then tend to leave in freezing winter's night till last. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to keep flowing, particularly because everyone tends to, especially in the performance, everyone's slightly gone to sleep or into a nice reverie during the harp solo. And you stand up and you have this 5-4, this quite unhelpful beginning. <laughs> and then you're meant to sort of start. And then obviously it changes key halfway through into the, into the naturals, over the flats and getting into that major sixth interval. So we, you do vocal things to practice that as much as possible. But I think by the time you get to that, they've kind of bought in to the um, to the experience. It's just so wonderful. Madeline Holmes and Ben von der Clark. Ceremony of Carols was premiered in the library of Norwich Castle on the 5th of December 1942 performed by the women's voices of the Fleet Street Choir, including Margaret Ritchie, who later became a leading soprano in the English Opera Group. As I mentioned, the harpist was Gwendolyn Morris and the conductor won T.B. Lawrence. The same forces gave the London premiere at the National Gallery a couple of weeks later and performed it again in Britain's hometown of Lowestoft in January. So it does occasionally come out in January. The work can either be sung by women's voices or children's voices, and for any numbers really, though a minimum of six is needed. For my part, I first sang it when I was at school and later when I ran a female voice sextet called, forgive me, The Fairer Six at Edinburgh University. It was a regular feature of our Christmas concerts. In 1955, Britain's publisher asked him whether they could arrange a version for adult choir, including the lower male voices, to which Britain readily agreed a testament to the popularity of this piece, allowing it to be performed by pretty much any group of singers. There's also a version of the harp part for piano. Just a final word as we process, or rather recess, out of this podcast. The opening and closing plain chant movements have their own little story and a specific afterlife in Britain's works. The opening movement had originally been similar to the others with harp accompaniment and called Hodie Christus Natus Est, Today Christ is Born. Britain later cut that movement and replaced it with the unaccompanied procession, which is based on the Magnificat Antiphon for the second Vespers of the Nativity of Our Lord. It's repeated at the end as the choir leaves the building, their sounds fading into the distance. The plain chant had been suggested to him by the music critic Alec Robertson. Nearly 30 years later, Britain composed a birthday piece for Alec Robertson called Alleluia for Alec, and it was based on the plain chant for Ceremony of Carols. Britain arrived back in the UK, bearing with him not only this piece and the others I mentioned, but an early synopsis of Peter Grimes on notepaper bearing the Axel Johnson logo. There is something surely symbolic about leaving America and creating these most English of works with the carols based on the English galaxy of shorter poems. 
Yet, as I mentioned at the start, this piece is performed the world over. On the day I'm recording this, it was being performed at a church in Walkersville, Maryland, in the United States. Britain specialist and professor of musicology in Florida, Imani Mosley, has spoken of having lived most of her life in warm climates and how hearing Ceremony of Carols by candlelight every Christmas grounds her in the idea of a wintry season. It does indeed have a remarkable atmosphere all of its own and, as you've heard, quite the story behind it. I've heard of harpists sort of being incredibly cold when they arrive. And... I bring an electric fire and a length of cable <laughs> and a mat because stone floor is very cold to sit on. So it's quite useful. I don't know, when I'm hearing it, I don't think of it as being in a church. I mean, often it's performed in a church, isn't it? But it sort of could be in a barn somewhere. I don't know, Thomas Hardy's oxen. There's something so mystical and magical about it. And it's quite funny how it's become such a staple of the Christmas season. I don't think Britain writing on his ship in the Atlantic would have ever imagined that. Do you know what I mean? That was from There Is No Rose. The recording of Ceremony of Carols in this podcast is by the National Youth Girls Choir, with Vicky Lester on harp, conducted by Esther Jones. With grateful thanks to Delphian Records for allowing us to use extracts from this recording. Ceremony of Carols is published by Boozy and Hawks. Thank you also to my guests, Miriam Keogh, Ben Von Berg-Clark and Madeline Holmes for taking part in this podcast. <laughs>